you brought your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation 22. Uh, if you didn't, there's one in the pew in front of you, or go online, whatever it is you do. I joined the track team when I was a freshman in high school. I didn't like sports a whole lot, mainly because it meant that I was after school um, doing that and not doing what I want. And I don't like being told what to do. So I didn't try very hard. I was a terrible track person. Uh, in fact, I, I came in last place like almost every race that I ever ran. Um, and I made a friend uh, on the track team. I can't, can't remember his name because we moved that next year, and I haven't, obviously haven't seen him since I was a freshman in high school. So, um, But you remember how high school, you know how in the movies, in, the, in high school, high, the, all high school movies, you've got like these strata, these very identified strata of coolness? That's all true. Remember how that's all true? And, uh, and this is just an important detail to note that, that he was on a lower strata than I was. Now, I was not top tier. I was like middle of the rung, but he was much lower than me. But because we both didn't care about track, and we were both always in last place, we became friends. So I'm running, so as I said, I almost always came in last place, uh, except for this one time. This one time was special. Uh, we ran the 800, which was twice around the track. We're on the last, the last loop coming around so that the finish line was just like a straight shot right down to the finish line. And I mean, everybody's off. Like, they're, they're done. The race is over. <laughs> he and I are chugging along. And as we're going, I hear this noise. I hear, Jordan. I was like, what is that? Jordan. Jordan. We're getting a little closer. And I realize they're cheering for me. Nobody's ever cheered for me. To this day, no one has ever cheered for me. And they're cheering for me. Jordan, Jordan. And I was like, I got to win. Well, it's not really win, but I got to not come in last place. <laughs> so I like turn it up a gear. And I, and, I, and I go, we're like, so that I'm just a little bit ahead of him. And then he does the same thing, turns it up a gear, goes a little bit ahead of me. We're getting closer. Jordan, Jordan, Jordan. I was like, wow, he's really working hard. I, I've got to beat him. So I turn it up again and I pass him. And he does the same thing. But I still hear this crowd in my mind, you know, not in my mind, they actually were. This wasn't in my head. It really happened. We're in church. Jordan, Jordan, it's so loud. And I'm like, I've got to win. I've got to not come in last place. I've got to beat this guy. And I try as, as hard as I can. I mean, I just bolt with my lungs are burning, my legs are burning. I never run hard. This is like... For somebody who in track, I, I'm working hard for the first time all season, and I'm running with all of my might, and I cross that finish line dead last. <laughs> my moment of glory. Like, I had dreams of, like, Rudy, like, being carried off the field, and all, all lost, all lost. We know what it's like to engage in activity in which we are passionately pursuing something. Uh, the Bible often used this race metaphor because it's something we can grab a hold of. And some of the Bible ideas that we have are concepts that, that are, are difficult to, grab, to grasp, to grab. I mean, we're talking about the kingdom and we're reading uh, these texts that are incredibly beautiful. But, I mean, how can you conceive of a city that's 1,380 miles long, wide, and high? I mean, you can't. 
It's so hard and so big. And, and sometimes, you know, as, as Jack was talking about, there's so many distractions in life. And, uh, you know, we, we get up and, and we just, we're in the routine until we go to bed at night and we haven't thought about God once. So it's so easy to lose track of what this is all about, what we're racing for. And so this running metaphor is used by Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to, to run as though there's a prize, to run hard. To see the finish line and just, and just burn all that you've got to reach it. Hebrews uh, tells us about a crowd of witnesses that's, that's in the stands that's watching it all because they've gone on before. And they're cheering us on and they're saying, run that race, run that race. Run like you've got something to achieve, like you've got something to win. Give your all for it because we have given our all for it. And, and in Hebrews it says, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him, scorned the cross, didn't, didn't think anything of the pain and suffering that he would go through because the prize on the other side was so valuable. Set your eyes on that kind of life. I, I like the word perfecter because it's a direct Greek, it's like direct translation, but really I think in context it makes sense to think of Jesus as the finisher He's the one who was way out ahead. Like we're coming along the backside of the track and the race is like Jesus is already, he's gone ahead. Run as though you have something to win. Uh, Paul, at the end of his life in, in 2 Timothy, he says, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And, and here this, this word crown is, is actually sort of the word for wreath. It's what you would actually crown. It was their version of the, the medal. Like you finished the race and you got this, this crown. And he's evoking these images so that you, could see, that you could see the power of this thing that we're after, right? The new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, the resurrection, all of this stuff, that's, that's, that's what this is about and we're running for it, we're fighting for it, we're racing for it, we're burning all of our energy for it, we're suffering for it. It is much easier to go through life just sort of doing your own thing, doing whatever you want, according to the flesh, as the, as the Bible says. It is much, much harder to pursue the fruit of the Spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and self-control. Does that sound like a good time? No! Right? It doesn't. It sounds hard. And anybody who says becoming a Christian is going to make your life easier is lying to you. But you also don't get glory by living an easy life. You get glory by doing something hard and doing something difficult. And we are being invited to that. I love this last line. This is underlined in my Bible. In that Second Timothy passage where I, I, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, he says, and there's stirred up for me a crown, of, a crown of righteousness that the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, but not just for me, but for all who loved his appearing. Loved his appearing. Not liked it. Not thought maybe this will be nice one day. Not maybe I'll start thinking about living my life according to the call of God someday later on. No, have loved it, passionately, wooed it, right? I, you, you've been in love before? Yes? Good. Some of you are married. I should have heard yes right away. When I, Laura did a lot of wooing as well, but, and she'd love to tell you all about it. But 
you, you, you passionately pursue that person. They're on your mind. They're what you think about. They're, you live your life according to, to, to what they're interested in. You, you go and see those terrible chick flicks, right? I mean, you do all of these things, right? Because you are in love with that person and you're pursuing them. Why do we not pursue God with that same loving passion? Why don't we pursue the kingdom with that same loving passion? And that's what the Bible is trying to get at because it's giving us in, in Revelation 21 and 22 this wonderful glimpse The smallest glimpse, the most pale comparison, but a glimpse of the glory God has in store for us. It says, the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were healing for the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign. Get that? They will reign forever and ever. That's a prize worth racing for. That's a prize worth working for. And I want to to see the illusions that we have here in Revelation 22 and how they tie us back to Genesis chapters 2 and 3 because in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, for those of you who are new to church, um, Genesis is the first book of the Bible and the first few chapters kind of talk about how God made things. And the second chapter sort of zooms in on Adam and Eve, the first people, and, and this place that they live that is just perfect. And God's walking through the garden. God's presence is there. But we see some, some details. There is a river that is in the center of Eden. It springs out of Eden, and it comes all the way through, and it waters the whole of the garden. And that's exactly what we saw here in Revelation 2. 22, isn't it? And there is a tree in the center of the garden, the tree of, of, of life. And they're eating from this tree of life, and this fills them with life. And so death is something in, originally in Eden that is, that is non-existent. And, and here it says, singular, the tree of life, except for where are the tree? Where are the trees? They're on either side, right? And, and, and they're going down the length of this river. So imagine in the New Jerusalem... In this capital city of this new earth and this new sky, we see a river that is 1,380 miles long. And alongside of this broad river that's pure, I mean the purest water that you've ever seen, that you've ever tasted, are these trees all the way down. And um, the, the, the Bible's a little bit, in English it sort of gets a little bit lost in translation, but there's this idea that's communicated a little more clearly in Greek that the, the fruit there's a 12 kinds of fruits, and each month it yields that fruit. So there's a growing season every single month of something new. The leaves are the healings for the nation. The curse, which was instituted, or, or a, a natural effect even, of the sin that Adam and Eve brought into the world, 
is now removed. Nothing accursed enters there. And so we see what's happening here in Genesis 2. As we read it, it's so beautiful. And yet in, Je- in Revelation 22, it's amplified. Rather than just a river through the city, it's a river that is pure as crystal. And it's the river of the water of life. And it's coming out of God's throne. Instead of one tree, there's a thousand miles of trees of life that the nations can come and just feast off of. And what I want you to see in this is, is two things specifically. First, there is a continuation, yeah, a continuation of an embodied reality. People eat food. People drink water. Why is there food and water in the kingdom of God? Because there are people there that need to eat food and drink water. Here's a fact, just a fun fact. You need water and food. You know, you learned something today. And so the Bible is revealing that. That we are going to be resurrected. There's going to be dirt under our feet. Maybe we'll be gardening. I, I, I hope that's not my job because gardening is terrible. But, I mean, we, we're going to see that. That's, that's an embodied reality, not some sort of disembodied floating in clouds kind of thing. And, and it bothers me because oftentimes Christians still talk like the hope that I have is once I die. No, the hope that I have is when I'm alive forever. That's the hope. The resurrection is the good news. The new Jerusalem, the new earth and the new sky, that's the good news. With God, before God, forever and ever, eating what kind of crazy fruit? That is on these trees. I have no idea. But whatever kind of crazy fruit that is, eating that with y'all is the good news. That's, that's the good news. It's embodied. It's exciting. Because life is really, really great. It really is. And we get to enjoy it amplified. The second thing is this verdant abundance that we see in the garden. Because everything about our lives here and now is based on the presupposition of scarcity, isn't it? Why do we go to war? And why? This is the stupidest thing. Let's kill each other. Great idea. Why do we do these things? Why do we fight with one another? Why do we do these things? Because there's not enough limelight. Because there's not enough attention. Because there's not enough love. Because there's not enough food. Because there's not enough water. Because there is a limit. There's not enough power. There's not enough position. And all of this jockeying and all of this stuff that we do to rise above each other is presupposing a limited God. And what Revelation is opening up for you is that you worship a God that has no limits. You worship a God who looks at your trials, your tribulations, and he doesn't see them as trials and tribulations. He sees them as opportunities for growth. He sees them as things that he's allowing you to go through so that you can be great and, and wonderful, that you can declare the excellencies of him who has brought you out of darkness and placed you in his glorious light. And so all of this stuff that we have see, we see here, these, these thousand miles of, of trees, and, and, and last week as we talked about the, the gates of the city, this giant pearled gate that's never closed, it's open all the time. The doors have no locks on them because there's nothing to steal. There's no reason for that. There's no limit. There's no scarcity. It's abundant. And it's an invitation of food and water and leaves. The idea before Big Pharma was that you would use uh, herbs and, and things like that would be the way that they would bring about me- medicine. And so this is evoking that imagery that the leaves are the healings for the nation. All our, all our borders and all our racism 
and all our economic disparity and all our hatred and all those enmities, all those wounds with which we have wounded one another and which the world carries constantly, these open things, now the gates are open and the nations can stream in and receive healing. That's beautiful. And that's the imagery that we're being called to see, that we're being called to enjoy, that we're being called to, to celebrate. We see um, also uh, inside the New Jerusalem, that's kind of what we're getting. We're getting this, uh, we've seen the outside of it, and now we're kind of getting this, what's happening inside. And so we're seeing all of this, this beauty and this life. But we also see that there is a removal of the curse that we talked about from Genesis chapter 3. It says there in verse 3, there's no longer anything accursed there. That that curse which set the ground to enmity with humanity, that the ground now will bring forth thorns and thistles instead of crops. That the, the relationship between men and women, which at one time was one of helping, is now one of domination. Where the husband or the strong stand over the weak, and God is undoing that curse and bringing together people in unity and in peace. He's bringing together healing for the earth. He's seeing all of this, and it's wonderful to think of all of the curse removed. We didn't go through um, the, the, marked, the mark on the forehead because we didn't read Revelation 13, but if you read Revelation 13, there's this uh, imagery of a world leader um, who forces the believers to take a mark on their right hand and on their forehead called the mark of the beast. If you've seen a horror movie, you know what I'm talking about, right? 666. Um, or listen to Megadeth or something, right? Some of you sinners out there. Matt, looking at you. No? Not Megadeth? Okay. You look like a Megadeth guy. I just read you wrong. I apologize. What was I talking about? Right. Revelation 13. Um, and so uh, what people have done with this thing is, uh, is tried to like interpret it. Like how many letters are in Ronald Reagan's name? 666. He's the beast. Right? This kind of stuff. Um, people are injecting. I mean, we, we currently can biochip things and, you know, we're taking marks in our hand. It's, you know, um, and, and maybe some of that is true. This is probably, I think, though, in reference to what we call a libelous, which was something that Rome did in persecution. Uh, they forced people to go to the, te- to the temple, and you would say, Caesar is Lord. And that was part of your worship process. You would worship, because if you're a good Roman, you worship the emperor, and you, you, Rome is your Lord. Um, Caesar is your Lord. Which is so interesting when we read Jesus is Lord, isn't it? Because it's something that's sort of anti-imperial, um, as Jesus is talking about it. But what, what is being talked about here, I think, is actually, while, while we see a parodying of the, of the powers of the world, of the satanic nature of world powers and economies and governments and all of these things, which are constantly in opposition to God, even as God utilizes them to bring about his goodwill. This is referencing something much older, how in the Old Testament, the high priest who was remember, would go into the holy place and then he would go into the holy of holies to make atonement for the people once a year. That the high priest is the only person who is ever allowed to be directly within the presence of God. And he would have a turban on his head and there was a gold plate that was set on the forehead and it said holy to the Lord. And he was the only one that wore it because he was the only one that was holy to the Lord. Holy enough to go and be in God's presence. But something has shifted because of Jesus Christ. 
something incredible and wonderful that we see here that instead of having curtains or walls or even the flesh of Jesus himself blocking us from beholding the glory of God, what did our text say? It says that we will see his face. And if you see his face, you must be holy unto him. Holy as the Lord will be written on your foreheads because as 1 Peter tells us, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see the connection? Because here we, that's the very next thing, there's no night. There's no need for sun, there's no need for moon, there's no need for stars, there's no need for LED lamps, there's no need for uh, uh, any kind of light because the glory of God just exudes everywhere and it is the light of the city and we are even now being drawn if you are following God ever deeper into the light of God into the love of God into the power of the Holy Spirit as you affix your eyes on him and run this race with endurance now again all of these things are uh, are metaphors because that's how we speak if, you, if, I, um, if I see an animal online and, and you've never seen the animal before, I'll say something like, well, it's got like the body of a dog and the nose of a bear and hooves, something like that, right? I mean, weird looking animal I was conceiving of there for a second. But um, I would have to say this is like this because you've seen the dog, you've seen the bear, you've seen the, the hooves, but you haven't seen this other animal And so all I can do is compare it to something that you have seen. So when John sees the city and he looks up so high that he can't he can't see the top of it. He says it's like gold, only it's pure gold. Like it's so, it's so pure, it's like crystal because the purest thing that you can think of is crystal because you can see right through, right? I mean, pure crystal. But gold's not see-through. So is it gold or is it crystal, right? We don't have the ability to even come close to imagining what God has in store for us. And that's what you should get as you read these things is not to say, wow, I can't wait to see a pearl gate. But no, the glory that is going to be so amazing in that city or in that place is so immeasurably great, so immense, so tremendous, so holy, so beautiful, that we can only draw the most pale and pathetic, even, comparisons to them. What's gold compared to the glory of God? Silver and pearls and jewels. I mean, what are these compared to the glory of God? They're nothing. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis I really like that um, I thought of as I was reading Revelation this week. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction. Did I put it up there? I didn't. Rats. Uh, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hungry because there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim because there's such a thing as water. Men and women feel sexual desire because there's such a thing as sex. If I find then in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. As I read Revelation, I see the hunger of the world. 
I, I just read this week that some, um, one of Google's, I think it was Google's, Futurist was talking, maybe Eric knows more about this, but Futurist was talking about how we will have the capacity to live forever in like 30 years, partially because we can move our brains into computers and all that kind of craziness. But why do we want to live forever? We don't want that so bad, right? Why do we want to, why do we cry when we, when we see things on the news? Why are we outraged when we see injustice? Why is all of that stuff in us? It's because we hunger. Whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian here today, you know that this is true. You hunger for a better world. You hunger for life. You hunger for justice. You hunger for a thing that you can't put your finger on. It's so deep inside you. There's not a word that can capture all of it, and yet you feel it. The scriptures say that hungers God. And that can only be fulfilled by God. And it can only be finally and totally, completely fulfilled in the kingdom of God when we stand in his presence and in his glory and in his light. And as we kind of come to a conclusion, as we begin to wrap up this book, I, I want to focus on, on these few verses and, and tease it out, and then next week we'll finish it. But envisioning, and in light of all of these amazing and wonderful things that we have seen, we see this verse, verses 6 and 7. So Revelation 22, verses 6 and 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. He says, and behold... I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that mean? How do we do that? Because I think what we've tended to see in people is, again, treating Revelation like a crystal ball and trying to interpret the signs of the times. In fact, you could probably type in signs of the times, and there's some website out there called the signs of the times, and they'll tell you the signs, and guess what? It's the time. Uh, Jesus is coming tomorrow, and, and he very well might be, but I don't think that's keeping the words of the book. This word keep it means to guard. It means you've, you've got something precious, and you're holding on to it. You're holding on to it as tight as you can because it's worth everything. And I think that what it's after is to say, keep the image of the kingdom. But you see the kingdom here, and, and, and if you can catch a glimpse, just the smallest glimpse of the glory that God has in store for you, why would you not spend all of your energy to run that race with endurance to make it to the end it says again and again that to the one that conquers 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 i'll make him a pillar to the one that conquers i'll write my name on him to the one that conquers i'll give him a name that no one else knows to the one who conquers i'll clothe him in glory to the one that conquers i'll offer him eternal life this is all about finishing and finishing strong it's about looking at the prize and running the race with endurance why did those kids cheer for me? Why did they cheer for me? I wasn't going to bring any glory to the school name not coming in last place. The guy was on my team, right? We were both. Why did they cheer for me? Why did they cheer for me? Because they didn't want him to win. Right? Nobody cares if I come in dead last or not. They didn't want him to win because he was not as good as I was. I was more popular. Isn't that what all of this is like? 
What a broken world. That in the same time that they're sort of cheering me on, they're kind of saying, screw you to him. I'm really glad that he won. <laughs> Looking back on it, I'm really glad that he won. If I could put my, my mind in, in my body back then, I wish I would have just stopped the race and walked off the track. We are so broken that we don't even recognize it because I don't think they were intentionally saying, I don't like you, but unconsciously they were showing their own bias, their own favoritism because he was less than I was. Even though, of course, in God's eyes, right? We try so hard to be first. What did Jesus have to say about being first? He didn't seem to think too highly of it, did he? The last shall be first. We are working so hard to live according to the rules of this world when all of the time the scriptures are calling to us and saying to us, look for the better world. Live for the better world. And it is possible here and now because, of course, we haven't seen Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem come out of the sky and the, the ground is not renewed and the sky is still full of pollution. And yet, even now, it is possible for us to live as though heaven has come to earth. We can live as though the world has been changed because in Jesus Christ, you have been changed. It says every day we are renewed by the spirit of the living God so that the curse that has broken everything out there doesn't break us. That power no longer rules. The loudest voice no longer wins the argument. The strongest isn't the most important. We are the place where we seek to love one another and outdo one another in honor and in humility. And if we were that kind of place, the world would say, what is up with those screwy people? And if you were the one person at work who didn't care about being the loudest or being the rightest or being the most well-paid, you would be a weird person too. And they would see somebody who has been moved out of darkness and into the light, proclaiming the excellencies of the glory of God. Because the excellencies of the glory of God outsurpass, outstrip, outrace every single thing that this world has to offer, offer you. So fight for those things that matter. Run for the things that matter. Work for the things that matter. Make Jesus your author. Make Jesus your perfecter. Make Jesus your vision. And keep the words. Keep the words. Because he's going to come when he comes. You have nothing to do with that. Obedience. Loyalty. Faithfulness. Justice. Love. Mercy. Goodness, these are the things that we bear in our bodies, in our words, in our deeds, and they make us a light to the world. So shine, shine. Let's stand and sing.